This is part three of three from our summer United States Supreme Court wrap-up live stream that took place on July 20th, presented by this podcast in the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service. It featured Dean Megan Carpenter and professors John Grady, Lucy Hodder, Buzz Scher, and Mike McCann. The video version is available at facebook.com slash unhlaw. This episode is with Professor John Grady to talk about the religious freedom cases of Tandon v. Newsom and Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. This is the Legal Impact, the weekly podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. No accepting applications for JD, graduate programs, and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or hosts and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. All right. Last but not least in the agenda today, we have Professor John Graby, uh, Director of the Warmby Rubman Center for Justice, Leadership and Public Service. You can learn more about the center at law.unh.edu slash Rudman. And we'll be discussing two cases that interplay with each other, uh, Fulton v. City of Philadelphia and Tandon v. Newsom. Uh, let's start with the latter. What was the basis for Tandon? Well, Tandon was really an, it was part of a line of cases that went to the Supreme Court over the course of the nation's encounter with this, with COVID and the many, uh, you know, complicated legal and and constitutional issues that uh, that were raised, um, and uh, so a series. These were a series of cases where um, uh, churches and synagogues and religious individuals brought challenges to restrictions uh, that were placed on them um, by public health authorities uh, because of the spread of COVID. Um, it was really interesting to see, and this is this is probably the area where the the switch from Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Justice Amy Barron, Barron uh, Co- uh, uh, Coney Barrett, sorry, um, uh, made the most profound difference. Uh, so prior to Justice Ginsburg's death, Justice Ginsburg passed away on September 18th of last year. Um, there were a couple of cases brought to the Supreme Court. Uh, on free exercise grounds. So the argument was this is interfering with our religious rights. Um, and the argument was that uh, restrictions on the ability of churches to gather um, violated the First Amendment. Um, both of those challenges were turned away in five, four decisions. Now, these challenges didn't get to the court through the whole process of briefing and you know, uh, litigation through a final judgment at the trial court, then appeal to the a court of appeals uh, or to a state Supreme Court and then on up to the Supreme Court. Rather, these cases came to the court uh, on the basis of stays that were either granted or denied uh, to request for preliminary relief. Um, this is the so-called shadow docket that's been getting a lot of attention from court commentators uh, because uh, it has become more and more common for significant legal questions to reach the court not after the full process of, of, of full briefing and argument, but rather because a lower court steps in and either imposes a stay on government action or declines to impose a stay on government action, those sorts of orders are immediately appealable. Um, and recently, um, it has become more common for, uh, it was actually quite common for the Trump administration in particular, um, um, to, uh, to, to take cases immediately to the Supreme Court, uh, but also for others, um, a, as with the religious groups in these particular cases. Where is, what is that stemming from? I and mean, would you say a lot of that stems from just current day, like everything's nationalized, it feels like, in current events? Yeah, you know, I mean, for part of that was in, in the particular context we're talking about where it's COVID, right? It's a national emergency. And so quick decisions need to be made on perhaps less than full information. 
Um, and, um, you know, those sorts of, uh, of decisions are, are ripe for emergency challenge and second guessing. But I think there's a phenomenon at play, and this goes back to something that uh, Professor Hodder talked about when she talked about the ACA case. Um, it has simply become more common uh, for uh, lawsuits to be brought by states that are opposed uh, to the policies uh, of the administration that holds power in Washington. Um, I, we can go back to 2005, a case called Mass versus EPA. Uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was given standing uh, to challenge the federal government's refusal to regulate uh, CO2 as a greenhouse gas. Um, ever since that case, states have taken advantage of their preferred status, at least in some instances, with respect to the standing doctrine, to bring claims uh, to challenge uh, laws uh, and policies that with which they disagree. So um, Professor Hodder talked about the challenges to the Affordable Care Act, to Obamacare that were brought uh, by, among other plaintiffs, uh, several conservative states uh, that were opposed to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, when President Trump took office, everything switched around and we had lots of litigation uh, involving, among other litigants, states who were, for example, opposed uh, to the so-called Muslim ban, uh, which by the time it actually reached the Supreme Court, um, uh, explicit reference to Muslim countries was, was weeded out. Um, and now, you know, we just saw in the news again last week that a, a federal district judge uh, has struck down uh, DACA. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, we're seeing this more and more. We're seeing the litigation process being taken over by, among other things, institutional litigants such as states who are opposed uh, to the political party that holds power in Washington. Um, in any event, that's, I think, part of the story. Um, uh, another part of the story is simply that the, the membership on the Supreme Court has changed really, really dramatically in the last few years. You know, we start with the death of, of Justice Scalia in 2016, an election year, the blockading of uh, Judge Merrick Garland's nomination. Uh, eventually, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch is put on the court um, and, the, and the Senate does away with the filibuster in order to make that happen. Justice Kennedy then retires. Um, Justice Kavanaugh ascends to the court after a lot of pyrotechnics, as we know. And then, of course, the death of uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her almost immediate replacement um, just before an election by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Um, so I think there are lots of parties out there uh, interested in getting their claims to this new court as soon as possible. Um, one of the contexts in which that is happening is claims of religious right, because I think it's, it's indisputable that the court has become far more receptive to claims of religious liberty made in various contexts. I think we are uh, facing a situation where we are on the cusp, at least, uh, of religious organizations having preferred status vis-a-vis -vis secular organizations. Um, religious organizations uh, are quite clearly fully entitled uh, to seek funding uh, when funding is made available by the government uh, on the same footing as anybody else. So whereas in past years, sometimes, for example, uh, funding for schools uh, was denied uh, to religious parents or to religious schools, um, uh, the court has made clear uh, that that is no longer permissible uh, under the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, that religious persons, religious organizations are entitled to seek government benefits uh, on the same footing as anyone else and cannot be discriminated against. However, um, religious organizations seem to be on the cusp of having preferred status 
uh, with respect to things like COVID restrictions, uh, where the free exercise clause has come into play um, and puts them on different footing before a court when they say, hey, this is unfair to us. This runs this this keeps us from freely exercising our religion. Uh, again, uh, they are on str uh, stronger footing, constitutionally speaking, than the Elks Club or some other secular organization would be uh, in making a similar argument. Yeah, I mean, a common talking point, and it got this from the court's opinion, quote, the government has the burden to establish that the challenge law satisfies strict scrutiny. To do so in this context, it must do more than assert that certain risk factors, quote, are always present in worship or always absent from other secular activities, end quote, as the government may allow. And I thought that was kind of like it summed up what the court thought about what was going on. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to restrict a synagogue or a church or or a temple, um, um, you know, or some other religious group uh, from engaging in religious activities, um, you had better be certain uh, that you are placing similar restrictions on literally everyone else who could be compared um, uh, to that religious group. That's what strict scrutiny says. Um, and strict scrutiny is is almost impossible for the government um, to to satisfy. And how ultimately did the did the court end up ruling on Tandon? When I mean, what was the the outcome? It, well, at once Justice Ruth. So there were two cases that went to the court when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on the court. Those cases, five to four, uh, upheld the authority of local government uh, to to place restrictions on religious groups. Once uh, Justice Barrett replaced Justice. Uh, Ginsburg, four more similar types of cases went to the court um, and uh, five, four, all four of those cases went the other way. Um, and the Supreme Court held that the free exercise rights of religious, uh, the religious litigants uh, had been, uh, had, had, were likely, because again, these are all appeals from injunctions, but were, were likely uh, to have been violated under the circumstances. So basically it seems like we don't know what's going to happen. It's entirely going to be up to the makeup of the court going forward with these cases, at least for the foreseeable. Yeah, you know, in a lot of doctrinal areas and in a number have been mentioned um, so far today, um, you know, we're still sort of waiting to see what's going to happen. Like next term, the court has a big abortion case on its docket. It has a big Second Amendment case on its docket. It's it's likely to take a big affirmative action case. Um you know, and, and we have to sort of wait and see what the court's going to do. I think um, that we're pretty much already there, though, with respect to claims of religious liberty. And maybe I could talk about the Fulton case at this point just to, to bring yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. that into the conversation. So um, actually, to set the stage for Fulton, I, I, I will make reference. Uh, members who are uh, of the audience who are watching may recall a case called Masterpiece Cake Shop that went to the Supreme Court. You stole my question, John. Sorry, what? You stole my question. Oh, 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 oh I'm sorry. <laughs> well, this was the case you may remember if you if you were a, if you're a news junkie, you may remember that a a, a baker in uh, Colorado refused to make a cake uh, for a same sex couple, uh, citing among other things his religious beliefs. Um, the case really sort of presented this fundamental question of um, our religious persons and organizations, again, on a different footing when it comes to following the law, uh, because Colorado had uh, law, um, uh, there was actually local law that, that banned discrimination against LBGTQ uh, individuals, um, and that law was invoked and the baker was held to have violated that law. He brought a claim up to the Supreme Court basically saying, I should be exempt from having to follow anti-discrimination laws because of my religious beliefs. 
Now, there's an old case actually written by Justice Scalia, who was quite a fan of religious liberty, um, called Smith that was decided uh, right around 1990. Um, and in the Smith case, again, people who follow this may be familiar with the case. A couple of individuals who were members of a Native American church uh, ingested peyote uh, as part of the sacraments for that church. Um, as a consequence of that, they were fired from their jobs. Oregon had a law saying that if you are fired from your job for uh, unlawful drug use, you cannot collect unemployment benefits. They said that may be fine. That's a neutral law that can be applied to everybody. That may be fine in most circumstances, but you can't constitutionally apply that law to us because we ingested the drug as part of our religious you know, uh, belief. Um, and we are entitled or we should be entitled under the First Amendment to do that. Um, and the Supreme Court, in a bitterly divided opinion written by Justice Scalia, rejected their claim and said, no, no, no. Um, so long as a law that is neutral and that applies to everybody is not enacted with a purpose of targeting religion, um, re religious people have to follow that law just like everyone else. Okay, so taken to its logical conclusion, that holding in Smith would mean that religious people have to follow anti-discrimination law, for example, um, and if, if anti-discrimination law protects same-sex couples, even if that runs counter to their religious beliefs. Okay, so the Fulton case um, sort of returns us to that scenario. Um, the city of Philadelphia contracts with various social service agencies to run its foster care program. Among the agencies with which it contracts um, is Catholic uh, social services. Catholic Social Services, a Catholic organization, refuses to certify as foster parents unmarried couples and same-sex couples. Um, there is an anti-discrimination law that bans um, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation um, in uh, contracts entered into by the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia said, you're violating that law. We're not going to work with you anymore. Um, they brought a challenge. So you can kind of see the analogy, right, to the, to the Masterpiece Cake Shop and brought it up to the Supreme Court. And one of the issues was, should we revisit that old Smith case, that peyote case, which says that basically religious persons have to follow neutral laws on the same terms as everyone else? A lot of people thought this might be the case where Smith is overturned. Three justices argued for it, um, but it didn't happen. Um, basically, six justices on the court said, we don't have to decide that right now because what Philadelphia did here is already problematic. Philadelphia allowed for exceptions to its anti-discrimination laws, but refused to grant an exception to Catholic social services. That was clearly unlawful. Um, and so again, that also happened, by the way, in Masterpiece Cake Shop, the court yeah, kind of that's, avoided Once again, both, both these cases, nothing was fixed. I mean, that's, that's something right. that people confuse, like nothing was fixed with either of these cases. They were simply process issues. Yeah, that's right. And you could just see the irritation, um, you know, dripping from Justice Alito's dissent in this case, that they sidestepped once again, this question of whether religious people have to comply with neutral, generally applicable laws. Um, that said, um, I think the handwriting is on the wall. I mean, in a series of cases over the last couple of years, as I said before, the court has made it very clear uh, that religious groups, religious organizations are on the same footing as everyone else. Uh, for example, 
Um, there was a case last year where uh, the state of Montana uh, was making financial aid available for parents of children who would be going to private schools, uh, but did not allow that money to be spent on religious schools. Um, and it invoked a provision of the Montana Constitution, a, a so-called Blaine Amendment, which said no money should go to secular schools. We actually have a Blaine Amendment in, under, in the New Hampshire Constitution as well. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, no, um, reliance on that state constitutional provision violates the federal constitution. Again, religious people need to have the same access to government benefits as everybody else does. However, and I think they're just on the brink of saying, however, religious people are in a preferred status with respect to having to comply with otherwise generally applicable laws that nonetheless cut to the heart of their religious beliefs. I mean, do you see a lot of states or local or smaller jurisdictions looking into how they handle these things going forward now that they the court basically has set up how it's going to be for the foreseeable future? And uh, now two big cases have come through like this. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a green light out there for states, including our own state, New Hampshire, um, you know, part of the budget bill that went in the recent uh, the recent budget that was signed by the governor that contained, of course, a number of controversial provisions that seemed to have not that much to do with the budget. Um, uh, among them uh, was a, a religious voucher provision that allows uh, for people to, um, to take money that might, would otherwise go to a local public school district and to use that at, for a private school, including a religious school. Um, and I think it's just really clear uh, that the, you know, at least under federal law, um, that's gonna be perfectly okay. And that states aren't gonna have a whole lot of leeway uh, to limit free exercise and to expand anti-establishment anti principles uh, and to, you know, like Montana did, you know, I, I think states, I, th I think the writing is on the wall and, and that these, these sorts of laws are going to be held constitutional. Anything else I'm missing on these cases? Nope, Except I think for like a million things that books are going to be written on some of this stuff. Well, yeah, it's, it's a complicated area and it's yeah. like that case within a case issue of Smith. So you always have to go back and talk about Smith, which is complicated. And then there's the overlay of it. So anyway, it's a it's a tricky area of the law. But the, the takeaway is religious rights are expanding. Thanks for listening to the Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify.